In this episode, I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Victor Yellow. Victor is a psychologist, and his work is primarily as the founder, VP, head of content, resident cartoonist of psychotherapy.net. For those of you who aren't aware, psychotherapy.net is an amazing resource that has over 300 teaching videos with live demonstrations and reflections and commentary of some of the most prominent and important psychotherapists uh, of our time. This would also include his father, Irvin Yellow. Um, think Netflix, but for psychotherapists. At the beginning of our conversation, you'll hear me thank Victor because I realized his company made available videotaped sessions of Virginia Satir's work, uh, who would later become a very important inspiration for me, uh, both as a therapist and just as a human being. Our meeting and connection to uh, doing this podcast came about quite randomly. I had emailed his company trying to locate a video I had purchased and couldn't find. And thankfully he responded because it was an obscure video that he would have been the only person uh, at psychotherapy.net to know how to find. Just in our email correspondence, I noticed uh, an openness and, and a warmth with him. So I thought I'd try my luck and invite him to have a conversation with me on the podcast, thinking maybe he would be likely too busy and politely decline. But as you'll see in this uh, conversation, Victor is a very down-to-earth, generous, and compassionate person uh, who's very open to having new experiences and sharing his knowledge. Rather than setting a specific agenda for, for the podcast, uh, Victor offered to have a very open-ended conversation with me to explore and to learn together, which was very exciting for me. Since this podcast is about connection, self-connection, it was fitting for us to be able to explore topics relevant to psychotherapy um, as both content, which served as the, the context for learning together and with each other. I experienced Victor as a very earnest uh, and supportive conversational partner. There were some very touching moments, particularly when he reflects on the gift he received from his mentor, James Bugenthal. Upon hearing the podcast during editing, I found myself really appreciating our mutual energy of gratitude, uh, this gratitude we have for our respective mentors and uh, the amazing people that have taught us who we learned from uh, both in person and uh, through through books and through videos. Victor in this conversation really helps to model some of the concepts that we discuss and we go into some of the experiences together sharing vulnerabilities about himself. So I hope you enjoy this interview and this conversation with Victor Yellow. Yeah, I, I think the feedback you gave to me, because I said, oh, you know, here, I, I asked you, what are some things you might want to talk about? Mm -hmm. And you said, like, I've talked about X, Y, and Z, but I'm also happy to just have a conversation with you and to see where we go. Yeah, yeah. So that that really resonated with me. The The podcast is called the Self-Connection Podcast. So we can, we can get into that because I think that encapsulates a lot of what I'm interested in, what I'm passionate about. Yeah, I'm I'm very very appreciative of you taking the time to meet with me. 
I'm looking forward to, <laughs> I'm looking forward to, to speaking with you. We don't know each other at all. So yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was remarking to my wife this morning and I said, you know, I'm feeling really nervous about talking to, to Victor Yellum and I, I don't know why exactly. Um, and I was trying to, to rack my brain to try to understand, but, you know, having read and been familiar with your dad's work, um, I thought it might be a good idea to bring that into the here and now and just mention that to you, you know, without yeah. an expectation of, of, uh, of that just fading away or you doing something miraculous to me. But, uh, but yeah. Well, well, you know, there's some immediately when you say that so many things come to me. One, I, I appreciate you just being open and transparent about that. And secondly, um, your second comment is, I don't expect you to do anything to make that, you know, go away. And I think that's a common, uh, a common kind of idea. Like, I mean, I'm not, you're just interviewing me. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not your therapist, but kind of immediately, since we're talking about therapy, I like to use whatever we can as kind of teaching. Um, mm -hmm. That's certainly a common expectation that a client might have is you're going to make it go away or you're going to do something about it rather mm -hmm. than huh, let's, what can I learn about this Yeah. from yeah. myself? Um, so I would, since you've been kind of brave and uh, uh, to just start out our discussion with that, I would invite you, if you're willing, just to take a minute and just tune in with yourself. Mm. Um, what, what are you aware of as you think about being nervous about talking with me yeah well I, I i think i tried to express it to you in some of my our email correspondence i i do have a, a debt of gratitude to you for what you've created with psychotherapy.net uh so there's it was kind of as i reflected on it as we started to correspond a little bit through email i realized that my use of your work and the production and everything that you put out there didn't begin just a few years ago or five years ago. It began 2007. So I had discovered Virginia Satir's work, who's the one of the founding, one of the first people to do family therapy, um, I think as early as 1951. And I was researching anything I could at the local, like my university library, to learn more about her work. And psychotherapy.net's production of her, a series, I think there was three DVDs that I found at the library, were, were, were just so significant to be able to see this woman's, this pioneer's work on video, not just reading her, because her words were impactful, but to see it uh, really made it come to life. And so I studied her work on my own independently for seven years before connecting to one of the institutes that does teach her work. Uh, yeah, Victor, I, I just want to say thank you publicly and, and just in our conversation, like, I really, I don't know if I can express to you because and maybe we can get into like why Virginia Satir's work matters so much to me. It, it really has changed my life personally and professionally. So that as an entry point, being able to watch those videos was like, I, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it because it was significant. So what you, what you did, and I think we're, we're there's sort of like a, a kinship between us. Cause I see what you've done in, in capturing a lot of these masters, their work is, uh, is what I'm trying to do maybe specifically with Virginia Satir, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, a couple things, uh, just just for the record straight, we didn't produce 
those videos with her. We produce lots of videos, but we also search out and find videos that others have recorded and right. assemble them in one collection. So just want to, don't want to, you want to give credit, <laughs> credit where credit is due. But secondly, you said you're getting a little emotional as yeah. you thought about it. Can you, can you tell me what the emotion is? Mm. It's, it's just like the sensation in my heart because Virginia's work, I've been interacting and learning with her work and uh, with many of her students for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's um, one, one of her students, her, her name is Maria Gamora. She just recently died. She was like 101 years old. Uh -huh. And she asked me, she said, because my son was just not even a year old. She said, well, you know, you're Chinese, like you're, you know, what, what's the cultural or what's the sort of background of how you're going to parent your son? And I said, you know, a lot of it's going to be based on what I've learned from Virginia Satir, you know, about family, about values, about humanistic values and, and, uh, and of communication and of being fully human. So a lot of those things. So when I think about, and it's, it's, I wonder what this is like for you to hear, you know, when, when think about these, and I know you might not have filmed the original video, but you, your company was responsible for producing it such that I was able to get access to it. Like these, you know, six degrees of separation are these things that happen, like, it, and the way that you've been able to touch lives and touch my life, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm very appreciative of that. So it's, it's a deep, deep gratitude and a connection to meaningful work for me, both uh, work in terms of client facing work, the therapy that I do with people, but then also in trying to, to produce a podcast like this, to be able to have meaningful conversations to, because I'm very interested in sharing uh, these ideas with, uh, with a larger and larger audience, because, you know, a lot of people don't know who Virginia Satir was. And a lot of people don't know about people like Rollo May and James Bugenthal, who I've also studied and enjoyed watching their videos. Um, you know, your father's very well known. I was telling my wife that I think probably most practicing therapists have read at least one book by by Irvin Yalom. So um, maybe that's also part of the the nervousness is just that, that connection. But um, but yeah, just thinking about my connection to this work and being able to branch off and, and to learn about other people who've been so meaningful to me. Um, yeah, it's, it's a deep, it's a deep love. I think it's love. I think that's what it is. It's like a deep heart uh, sensation for me. So, yeah. yeah, there's, there's this conversation is um, kind of typical of a conversation that goes on in therapy like there we've been talking for five minutes maybe um yeah and there's so much so many so much information in there and so many implications in there so again i'm not your therapist but we're having a conversation and and um there's so many ways that you and i could branch off Mm -hmm. and explore different topics and that just that's something that just strikes me right now when you're a therapist and you're hearing 
so many different things from a client. The words they're saying, the emotion that they're mentioning or, or expressing, <laughs> Mm-hmm. We could go off in so many different directions. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, uh, I think, underlooked creative aspects of psychotherapy. It's, you know, even if you are following a certain approach and there's certain approaches that are being taught that are much more structured than others, but even so, you're making, you're making a thousand choices. Mm-hmm. It's like a decision tree. I mean, I could go back and uh, you mentioned the first thing that you were feeling nervous. And I asked you about that. And you went off to kind of give me a story about why you thought you were nervous. Now, I could have pushed you, I could have pushed you more to sit with your feelings and explore them. But you got off on some very interesting territory and you talked about Virginia Satir and we could, we could go into that and then you brought it back to to gratitude and then you're mm-hmm. you're you're kind of embarking on your own journey to have these conversations and this podcast so i guess that's just one thing that strikes me is yeah. how how rich that is and how you and i can we can connect on a variety of different levels and yeah. this conversation can go off in a <laughs> myriad of directions but i think i think one of the things that uh, you know your reflections on if, if you put on your therapist hat, you could see that there's many different branches to go and there's yes. many possibilities. I guess one of the things that I'm wondering about is um, where is the line between the, the discourse and the skills of therapy that, are, that should be kept within the context of therapy? And where are those skills of presencing, of listening, of being curious? Like the things that you're doing with me, Right. Mm-hmm. And, and because you're not in this formal role of being my therapist, but these things are kind of coming to mind. And, and I, and I wonder, you know, in sort of in the direction of connection, if that, if that's a value or if that's a wish intimacy and connection at the level of, of romantic connection, of friendship, of, of collegial connection. Um, I mean, I think that's, that's a desire to, to connect uh, human to human in this moment with you. I think that's, for me, primary. So I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit, just um, what you think of that idea of where, in terms of something like the meaningful connection, like it's very meaningful for me to be able to say thank you to you, right? And I think that there's something intrinsic to that that's like, that's enough. Uh, and and so I, I would like to to hear if if, if that, if there's an, an emotion or if there's a human experience for you on the other side of that. Um, oh, I, 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 hope, I hope there's human experience yeah. with, with AI, who knows? You know, yeah, yeah. You I, could I, be, I, could, I could be yeah. a robot. Yeah. Uh, uh, so what comes through my mind and uh, in my heart, one, one thing I often do when I'm starting with a, a session with a client, uh, I might say, you know, what's, what's on your mind and what's in your heart as kind of a shorthand for uh, normally when you have a conversation, we're operating more on a uh, intellectual level. Right. Like, 
you know, how are you doing? And it's, uh, it's a, it's kind of a thought, oh, I'm doing fine. I, I, I uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, and then there are facts, you know, I, I, this happened to me or I, uh, you know, there was some change in my life or I traveled and I tell a story, which is fine. Um, you know, that, that's basic human social intercourse. But mm-hmm. when we're trying to have a deeper conversation, whether it's a therapy client session or whether it's you and I trying to have a meaningful conversation that uh, both for our benefit to enjoy it mm-hmm. and hopefully then in the process for your for you to have produce a podcast that other people will find benefit from, then we want to, our intention, I think, is a little different. We want to really slow it down, tune into the other person, and then mm-hmm. tune into ourself as we're talking to that other person. And it's, yeah. it's, uh, sounds kind of simple, but it's not because, uh, Attending to you means attending both to the words I hear, attending to your facial expression, to your tone of voice, and Mm. attending to myself. What kind of thoughts do I have as I'm talking to you? What are the feelings I have if I slow down and attend to them? Mm -hmm. Um, So then I think of other types of, I think of Carl Rogers, who had this you know, in some sense, a brilliant uh, insight, if you want to call it that, but just how important it is to really deeply listen to a client and attend to them and how much you can do by simply repeating back their words, but not, you know, in a parrot-like or mechanistic way, but to really make sure you understand what the other person is saying and let them know that you're hearing them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think of, uh, you know, love relationships, couples, how, you know, how that's difficult to just really hear the other person without mm-hmm. immediately getting your agenda in, whether it's, yeah. whether it's your argument, you're prepared to rebuttal for what they're saying, uh, uh, or, you know, a parent-child, like really to hear what your parent or your child is saying. Uh, I think that's the art of being present and communicating. The difference with the therapeutic relationship is you don't have skin in the game in the sense of you're not personally trying to get something out of that mm-hmm. relationship other than, you know, you're, you're getting satisfaction and you're getting money that's how you make a living uh but it's easier to have that kind of embodied openness and presence and in, mm-hmm. in a love relationship where you're trying to get your needs met uh, at the same time as you're mm. trying, yeah. trying to be there and listen to your partner it makes me it makes me think about the being in the role in the relationship of uh of a father and um that there are certain moments where it it is like the explicit we're doing this thing like we're we're you know practicing piano or reading breakfast now or there's some kind of task it's kind of like it's concretized in the same way that when somebody answers the question 
you know, how are you? And they say something that's scripted, like I'm fine, or you're not really kind of getting into it. But then there's other moments of spontaneity and of play. And, and I think about sort of the essence or, or the, the, the healing factor of play therapy or something like that, as there, there's this dance between sort of the, the, this concrete sort of interaction and then also the the revealing the revealing of oneself their their vulnerability and i think what your my experience of you just now victor is that you know you're you're sharing the experiences you've had and and i think your your knowledge and awareness of of a variety of different experts i guess i'm still curious about your inner experience and if there's anything about that that you're feeling in the here and now uh, by way of us uh, kind of dropping into that together, I wonder if you could reflect on that. Um, so just, you know, and even as I have this conversation, I think we're always wearing multiple hats in a sense. Um, and I'll, I'll answer your question, but I, uh, so I'm trying to just be fully engaged and open as I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm also aware that this is a podcast. This is hopefully for other therapists to listen to and learn something. And mm -hmm. just as my father's, many of his stories or engaging stories that anyone can read, he also has, is wearing the hat of these are also uh, teaching stories for therapists. So I'm kind of aware, well, I'm, I'm also trying to say something that the, the viewers, uh, the listener who's may, likely to be a therapist, may learn something mm -hmm. from it. Um, oh, so the reason now I forgot why I made that point. Now I remember your use of the word here and now, uh, the term, I think it's important to define at least as I use it and I understand it because I think it's often understood in different ways. But uh, my father used that in terms of group therapy here and now specifically to mean what's happening between the members of the group in the group. So they're talking to each other about how they feel about each other. Uh, and then he used that term in terms of uh, with working with uh, clients or patients in the therapy session, in the here and now of how the therapist and the client felt towards each other mm -hmm. in, in the therapy session. So and I make that distinction because I think it's often used rather loosely, like here and now just means any feeling that you have now. And it's really, uh, at least the way he uses it, I use it, it's, it's more than just here. It's just more than just now, it's also here between mm -hmm. the two of us. So, um, And in a specific context. Correct, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I am feeling... Um, engaged i'm feeling uh um i'm consciously trying just to tune into you and to myself and to be slow it down a bit um mm -hmm. you know i think we exchanged a few email exchanges uh, prior to this and there are certain topics i've i've talked about uh, on other podcasts or written about and thought, given the topic of, of your podcast, The Self-Connection, I thought 
I would like to just be a little more spontaneous mm-hmm. and see what emerged rather than kind of make the, some of the same points, maybe your same discussions I've had before. So uh, that's what I'm aware of. And it's a, it's a pleasant feeling. I feel in touch with my the energy flowing in my body. And uh, what else? A little, not nervous, but a little vulnerability. Like I feel a little bit mm. uh, openness, uh, a little stirring maybe in my heart just to try to reveal who I am and kind of be present, get mm-hmm. to know you. So that, that's, mm-hmm. that's what I'm aware of right now. Yeah. When you, I noticed when you said sharing about who I am, there's a, some idea of, of something I wanted to bring up with you. And I just smiled now because it seems like a good segue into that is I'd like you to share about your connection to James Bugenthal. I'm not sure if you've had, a, if anyone's asked you about this uh, connection specifically, but um, I've, I think I've seen every video on psychotherapy.net related to his work. Um, could you, uh, would you feel comfortable to share a bit about him and then your connection to him? Absolutely. Um, I first encountered him in graduate school, probably towards the end of my studies. And he came in to give a talk to our school, kind of a lunchtime talk. And I, I didn't know anything about him. He was probably, you know, probably in his uh, you know, 70s then. One grounded, distinguished looking, but kind of down to earth. And he, I remember he, he was telling some story about some old truck, Chevy truck he had. And I was just struck by, you know, I, I knew he was considered an existential or actually he coined the term existential humanistic psychologist. And I was aware of my dad's work and I was aware, you know, I'd met Rollo May and taken a seminar, seminar with him. And Rollo was much more, little more cerebral or erudite and you know he would write about greek gods and things and i just struck like jim is talking not about greek gods or myths he's talking about a a chevy truck and it just seemed like (laughs) salt of the earth and then the other thing that struck me is at some point he was i don't know if it was that story or another story but he teared up and this was in the uh, late 80s and men you know, didn't tear up much. I mean, you know, in my lifetime, there's, uh, I think, Eagleton, uh, there's him or some vice presidential candidate. He teared up in a speech and he was immediately had to drop out of the race because mm-hmm. men didn't cry in, in public. Right. And, and, and what, um, what struck me is he teared up and he responded very, in a very accept, kind of curious and accepting manner. He said, oh, uh, you know, I always get emotional when I tell this story. And it wasn't, oh, I'm sorry. You know, so you see that with men so much, you know, if they get emotional, I'm sorry. Or even mm. women or even clients, they apologize for right. being emotional. And it was right. just, so it was beautiful and refreshing and uh, kind of it made me curious. Like he just said, huh, I'm getting emotional. You know, I, I get, and he was just, accepting he kind of paused and and then he just went on to tell his story Mm -hmm. so 
uh, it's like it, it was just so to be that in touch with himself and with his energy and with his emotions was just so natural for him and accepting um, accepting. yeah 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 like that's part of the ex human experience yeah. um so i then I thought, this guy's interesting and i signed up and took a a five-day workshop with him which is very intense and experiential and uh you know i think in, anyone who's had kind of a you know in, in intensive experience whether it's a five day or three day or one day workshop where they explore some topic they're passionate about but also that's experiential so you can really delve into your own feelings and experiences you it can be quite uh, remarkable and uh, it was for me and that began an association that lasted you know uh, 10 or 15 years of uh, regular work with him workshops doing a consultation group and you know eventually making a video with him and he was a mentor and a teacher and uh I just learned so much from him and, uh, you know, got to know his wife and was really, you know, I made a video of him, which launched psychotherapy.net. So I have a debt of gratitude towards it, it's, okay. it's a, the two, two, it's existential humanistic psychotherapy in action. It's at two sessions, uh, with a client. Okay. And, um, then he did, uh, John Carlson uh, did a series of psychotherapy, the experts, where he does a single session with uh, uh, a black woman. That's uh, an excellent session as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder, as you're talking about him now, what what you could be in touch with, uh, and if there's any pearls of wisdom. I, I watched that session with John Carlson and two things jump out at me. The first is uh, about his tears. There is a moment in that session where he tears up and he's reflecting on another client when he reflects on working with an African-American client. And this, uh, this gentleman said to him, uh, you know, I came to you, a white therapist, because I was hoping that you would make me white. And he just, in that moment, huh. immediately gets in touch with that. And he's, and he's just reflecting and his, he just gives himself that space to have that moment to get in touch with that and then to to uh articulate that to to the audience and but it's not it never feels like a gimmick there's a there's a quote by Roland may i want to read to you later and, and on this very topic of, of that i just mentioned of gimmicks and but this anyways i'm just so curious about what you if you could if you could summarize in a few a few moments like what what you learned over 10 or 15 years what what yeah. stands out to you what what uh yeah sure and i i just share as you i'd forgotten that statement uh, uh that jim's client said about the one hoping you could teach me to be white and I, as you read that i was just moved as well uh what a what a statement and yeah and he explained that they just wept together that 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 was just like yeah, there was just something so immensely powerful in that. And what a gift that he could, he could uh, weep with that client and share that story with with the other client, and then you and I can still be moved by the story. Yeah, there are some stories yeah. he would tell over and over again, and every time he would tell the same story, he he would be moved and 
almost, you know, whoever would be listening to be moved. Uh, so there are a couple of things, powerful ideas that uh, I learned and I wanted to, that's why I wanted to make a video uh, of Jim to preserve those ideas. And I'm, I'm in the process now of recording sessions uh, that I'm doing and hopefully get some other uh, therapists who were trained by him to do so to produce a training series of videos that really breaks down these, these ideas and skills and demonstrates them. So uh, the one is, and he wrote about this for probably 50 years in one form or other, the idea of therapist presence and client presence. And this certainly relates to the idea of mindfulness, which is, you know, very uh, popular now, but he, he was writing about this. I and mean, of course, mindfulness goes back thousands of years, but he was writing about this in the context of psychotherapy for, you know, well before the mindfulness kind of right. became popular. And it's really how to help the client you know, dig inside themselves and become aware of the whole world that exists inside them, inside all of us, mm -hmm. and how to help the client explore that. He used the term searching, uh, and there are some specific techniques involved, but, uh, you know, he would contrast this with, you know, as I said, about kind of typical conversation, which he would kind of referred to like as a ping pong match. I say something, you say something, and we, we trade off and we really, you know, uh, kind of bounce back and forth. And instead the therapist's role is to help the client go inside themselves. And uh, so you might, you know, a typical launching point might be a therapist, you know, if, say a therapist might say, well, well, what are you feeling now? And that's just the beginning. Most clients don't go too far when you ask them that. They'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm a little upset, uh, you know, because, you know, I had this fight with my girlfriend and she said this. And then, and already they're telling a story. They're yeah. repeating something that's happened to them. They're telling you thoughts they already have had, which is okay. Uh, you know, and sometimes it's useful for you have to know about the context of their life, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they're not learning anything new generally, right. you know, right. these, these, so if you uh, do things like saying, huh, slow down, take a breath. What, what, as you've done to me today, what gets evoked inside you as you recall that event with your girlfriend? Uh, and then there are other things you can do, just reflecting back a uh, process that is not the content of what they're saying, but anything else, which could be their facial expression. I notice your face looked sad as you said that, or I noticed your eyes watering up, or I noticed your, 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 your jaw clenching, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or, you know, the voice, you really slow down as you said that or i, I notice your voice is shaking or mm. i you know i notice you, you seem to really hold your arms tightly so there are all these things you can do to help the client go inside themselves and dig further and discover new things you know another i mean there's lots of these it's not about techniques but techniques are helpful and, and useful um 
So he would, one of the most powerful things he, he would do, he said is the word and, you know, the client says that, yeah, I feel a little, uh, oh, I don't know, a little, there's a little shaky inside. And then they look to you with the expectation of the ping pong match and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to lead them on. And so he might just say, and, and the implication is, oh, I get very emotional now thinking about that. It's, uh, I think just, I don't know why. I think it just connects me to my memories of working with him and, um, I don't. It seems like such a respectful way to encourage the person to stay within themselves rather than maybe the therapist taking over or something like that, becoming really active. Yeah. Is that... The it's reinforce it's introducing and reinforcing the idea that there is more. There's always another another thing he said, which again makes me emotional. He would say, there's always more. You know, there's an endless world inside of us for exploring. And for some clients, that's a very new idea that there's this world inside them that, and you don't spend a whole therapy session exploring that, but if you get five good minutes and they come out with this new experience, a new understanding of themselves, that that's remarkable. Uh, so, so back to your question well before we kind of tread, tread along victor I, I wonder if you could could sort of model for us by staying kind of with the emotion that was coming up with the word and and then this idea of more in your relationship i'm just so curious what was bubbling up for you in that moment that seemed really important yeah you're good you're you're a fast learner oh. or maybe maybe you've You've obviously exposed yourself to these ideas before. Okay, so if I just tune in, am I still in touch with that emotion? It's um, something about the and seemed really powerful. And. Yeah. I just have a faint image of him. He was so earnest. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he, he had a sense of humor, but he was so, there was this sense when you sat down with him, I, I was never a formal client of his, but we would do role plays or we would, we would work with ourselves. We would do real work, therapeutic work and, and exercises. And the sense of earnestness about him and caring, um, just how, how much that's impacted the whole course of my life. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, as that emotion gets triggered in me, I just feel alive. I feel the energy going down my legs. I feel Kind of my heart feels open. My 
my eyes are closed, as you can see, and I just feel, you know, for much of my life, I, I was kind of depressed and, and I, I was a little, I felt, I was just a little shut down. Uh, um, my 20s, 30s, uh, and I think this work with him was one of the things that kind of opened me up and got me more in touch with the wide range of my emotions that allowed me to be a, a better human and a better therapist. So mm. um, those are some of the things I'm aware of. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you going inside in that yeah. moment. And because um, I think it, it won... Uh, in this conversation, I want to, obviously, I want to get to know you. And I also want um, us to, to honor these amazing people that have touched mm -hmm. us. And, and yeah. I think by us, it's like we're connecting through their work or through your experiences with them. I'm learning something about that. Um, I want to read you a, a quote from him. And I, I want to get your reflections from this after. Uh, this is him giving his own reflections after the session with Gina which you can find on psychotherapy.net. Um, so, so she's she's the uh, African-American woman, Yes, right? that's right. Yeah, that's and right. Th that video is, is titled simply Existential Humanistic Psychotherapy. Great. Okay, so he says, but early on, I wanted to change her implicit sense of her task from telling me about herself to expressing herself. That's an important difference. Then she makes herself an object of description when she does that. We're not dealing with a living person, information about her. I don't like to get a lot of information about a client in advance. I want to know, are they reason reasonably able to maintain reality tests, that sort of thing. But too much information just clouds the screen for me. I need to be as innocent in a certain way as I can be for each person to, to discover, to discover this unique person. And that sounds very nice and humanistic, and it is. But the real value is that way I get to know the living person, not about a person who has that name. So. Yeah, I don't know what, it, I think I think he says it very well. Uh, I, I'm not yeah. sure what to add to that, but I think uh, uh, he, well, I, I guess one thing that's struck by that is he wants that uh, for her, himself and so he can be useful to her but if if i'm understanding that correctly and recall that correctly he's saying that she has that perspective about herself that she objectifies herself mm -hmm. and then you know i think that's we all do that to some extent um and so that's one of the things he's trying to help her do is not mm. talk about herself. She's this way. She's, this is her problem. But I'll do what he can to help her experience herself in real time. And again, the way I think about it, so she can have a new experience of herself. I mean, I, I recall back to one of the first therapies I was in and you know, and I was kind of a typical introspective teenager who had thought about my problems and journaled and, you know, for years. And yet 
I would go to a therapy session and, and come out of most of the sessions with this therapist when I was in college and have a slightly new take on something. And to me, that was amazing that I could spend, you know, 50 minutes with therapists talking about things that had plagued me for, you know, 10 years. And somehow in one session, I would have a slightly, maybe not a Hollywood breakthrough, but a slightly different uh, understanding or experience of myself. So I think that's, that's what he mm -hmm. was tr trying to help Gina do. Yeah, it's a, there's something in the when you're talking about yourself and you're objectifying yourself in a way the way that he phrased it is he would observe her mocking herself he'd say oh you know he'd, he'd watch her nonverbals and say oh there there's that sly smile or there's that kind of right. thing that you're doing and he would he would sort of note that to her and then you know there's the entry point into experiencing being able to experience yourself uh, in that way okay uh, um yeah. so then that gets to the second point i so of, of the I mean, he's taught many things, but the, the two, I think, most valuable ideas, one is various ways to help the client really be present uh, with themselves in a variety of ways, with their thoughts, with their feelings. So it's not just feelings, it's the search process that he called it, is helping them get more uh, in touch with their thoughts, their feelings, their fantasies, their body sensations, a variety of present experiences mm -hmm. um, going deeper and staying with that and exploring that and then invariably butting up against what he used the term which can be a little problematic resistance uh, and it's not resistance to therapy it's resistance to life it's it's coping patterns it's it's ways we all are habitually that mm -hmm. you know it's uh, impossible to live without certain patterns of being uh, and ways we relate to others and ourselves that are necessary for survival. Uh, um, uh, uh, you know, there are different names for these defense mechanisms, body armor, but ways mm -hmm. that we go through the world that preserve us, that work for us, but also limit us. He mm -hmm. would have various analogies you would call like a spacesuit. You know, you need a spacesuit to survive kind of, you know, the atmosphere in the world, but the spacesuit is, is, restricts you greatly. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, for Gina, it might've been mocking herself uh, for others. It might be intellectualizing for others. Uh, uh, maybe you lived in a, in a family or where you really had to, keep your emotions hidden because if mm -hmm. you expressed vulnerability you would get you would get brutalized you know yes. so there are ways of being in the world um, or maybe you you're in a type of work like much work that's highly intellectualized and you know that's how you make a living that's how you do your work and expression of emotion is not going to help you Right. You know, right. Uh, and maybe you're in a very competitive environment. Okay. Well, that's all fine and good, but that may not work so well when you're entering the terrain of dealing with yourself, dealing with difficult feelings, dealing with a relationship. So, so say you have a highly intellectualized client and every time you try to, to help them access their feelings, they go off on an intellectual tangent. 
So then you start, you know, that limits them, that restricts them both in mm -hmm. their life and in the therapy. So you start noticing that you start putting that into words, you, you know, there you are, you're talking about yourself again, or you're, you're dealing with your difficult emotions or your depression or your relationship as if it's, as if it's, uh, um, you know, whatever profession they're in, you might use that as an analogy, as if mm. it's a computer software or as, uh, as if it's an, you know, you're trying to uh, close your accounting books. Mm -hmm. So you start mm. formulating or he, you know, if tagging the resistance and then helping the client eventually get some flexibility. So they still have those coping mechanisms, but maybe that's not the only way they can think about themselves, understand themselves, explore themselves. So yeah. uh, those two points, helping clients search more and helping them have more flexibility with their coping patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I want to sort of make a connection here based on my experience in learning with Virginia Satir because she she provided me with a perspective that really honored whatever the coping pattern was to to help differentiate that from the person and to be very mindful about not um, associating language to the identity of the person in a way that um, took away from their dignity or took away from their sense of self-worth. And I see I see that um, in in James Bugenthal's orientation, his respect of people, his honoring of people and honoring of whatever the coping patterns might be that I think to what you're expressing that, you know, it's, it's, it was built in a context for good reason. It was something that was learned and it serves in a particular moment or a particular uh, family situation or work situation. And you can learn things on top of that. And then you could start to have choices about these things. Um, and, and I think that that way of relating to people and also relating to their patterns um, it's, it's, it's growth oriented and, and something I really enjoyed seeing. So I, I thank you for, for explaining yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. He had all these little phrases that he would use like the, and, uh, another one would be, uh, more in explaining concepts to therapists, but he may have used those in, and, uh, in therapy is that one was, uh, inclusion, not amputation. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to, yeah, you don't cut off. You don't, uh, if someone has, has, has crutches, you don't whack them out from under them. They need those, but, but uh, there are, they, they can grow. They can add some other ways of being or problem solving. Was it, was it James Bugenthal that talked about, he had this uh, way of speaking and correct me if I'm, I'm attributing it to him and it, it maybe it's not him, but he would talk about the importance of support and he'd, he'd hold his hand up and said, you, you want to support and provide, and I guess it would be somewhat of how we think about secure attachment in the therapeutic alliance, but then there's a hand that comes up behind it and that's the hand that gently kind of pushes and, and, and ushers the, the, the person forward. Maybe you could explain that better, better than I'm able to. Yeah, he, he would talk about, yeah, support, but a backstop you know, some boundary, boundary, and let's see what would, what he mean by that. Um, yeah, you don't, uh, you, you know, if you're confronting a client on something, say, again, use the term an intellectualized client, you're, 
you know, if, if that's the way they've kind of mastered the world is by thinking and intellectualizing, you want to support them in that, but you also want to, uh, you want to push them to maybe explore some other ways, but you want, but there has to be the safety. So he, he mm-hmm. would, another thing he would say, we would often ask him, you know, questions Well, like, you know, when, you know, if you ask some kind of general question, like, well, when, you know, how do you decide how much to confront a client or when do you do right. this? Or, you know, would you do this in this situation? And he would, he would, he had this hold up two fingers and he would say two things what is the alliance and what is the context? And by that, he would mean, what is the nature of your relationship? You know, do you have a strong relationship? Is it a first session? Is it, mm-hmm. is it a 10th mm-hmm. session? Is it a 50th session? Uh, is the client, you know, and what is the context kind of what's, and that's a broad category, but, you know, is the client suicidal? Are they in mandated treatment? Are you, are they, uh, are they, uh, you know, psychotic, you know, right. well, what is the context that you're treating them? And, and, and so all of those, you know, you know, and as he said, he wants to approach the session openly, but you want to have a sense about them. So, you know, that's why we train, you know, and whatever terms you use, whether it's ego strength or, you know, what, are they actively using substances, you know, mm-hmm. are they, or mm-hmm. do they have some, uh, or, um, you know, what is the nature? Are you treating some client, you know, right now that's uh, coming out of Ukraine? You know, right. what are your, what are your, what is the context of your therapy or your treatment? Uh, so these are all things you kind of have in the front or back of your mind. Um, so Victor, I want to, I want to change gears. I want to, sh- I want to read another quote to you. And this is from Rollo May. This is a conversation, I don't know if, how well you can recall, it's like he's talking to other therapists or PhD students or something like that. This right. is in, must have been in the 70s or something, I imagine. Yeah, this was, a, this was a video produced by uh, Kirk Schneider, and it's Kirk Schneider and, and a few colleagues interviewing okay. her. And uh, I think, yeah, that, the title of that video is Rollo May on Existential Psychotherapy. Okay, so so he he reflects... And the problem is that psychotherapy has become more and more a system of gimmicks. People have special ways of doing their own therapy. They learn which particular buttons to push. They're taught various techniques by which they can. So they can at least cure this isolated symptom and that. That wasn't the purpose at all of Freud and Jung and the rest of the really great men who began our field. Their purpose was to make the unconscious conscious. And that's a great, there's a great deal of difference between them. This is what Freud was setting out to do. It's what Jung was trying to do. It's what Adler and Rank did. These people never talked about these gimmicks. It didn't interest them. What did interest them was making a new person. You see the new possibilities come up. Then you have, then you change the person. Otherwise, you change only the way he behaves, uh, only the way he approaches this or that incidental problem. The problem is going to change in six months when he'll be back again for more so-called therapy. Um, so, so people understand like psychotherapy.net, uh, is a, is basically a library of a variety of different approaches. Um, and, uh, your, what, what's your official role? Like the, 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 one of the founders and, and obviously producing, and, and you have probably lots of hats. Um, I, I wonder if you could reflect on this quote. I would say my take on it is a, 
I think there's a lot, you know, it's, it's not my, my take of it. Lots of people are saying this. One thing that's happened is this, this list of evidence-based therapies and, and, and so people think evidence-based therapies are somehow more effective than therapies that are not evidence-based. On the whole, that's not actually the case. Uh, on, on the whole, the research still shows over and over and over again that the type of therapeutic approach is not significant in explaining outcome. It's, mm. you know, it's the, the two most important factors have consistently been the therapist-client relationship, whatever, however that's referred to, and the client mm. variable. Certain clients, you know, if you have a very, very difficult psychotic client who's homeless or on drugs, they're, they're going to do worse than, you know, relatively well-adjusted clients. So uh, the fact is these different approaches, a very small percentage of the variance of out, outcome is determined, if any, by, by the approach. But it's easier to do research on very structured approaches. So it's easier for them to get funding to do research and then become on these registries or lists right. of evidence-based approaches, they're not necessarily better at all. Uh, so that's a research question. That's a, that's a um, you know, bureaucratic question. That's a funding question. Uh, but our field has moved much, much more into this idea of these are the these are the approved techniques, or these are the techniques that our agency is going to allow or that insurance is going to allow. Uh, it doesn't mean they're better. Um, I would, and the downside is that I think there's less emphasis on, on some of the things we're talking about, on how do you as a therapist develop yourself your ability to sit with emotions, to help the client explore mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, I recall for, you know, I did a consultation group many years ago and, and one of the, one of the uh, students, you know, he, he practiced, you know, CBT type therapy uh, for anxiety. And he said, you know, I, I have clients and I do, I do this technique or that technique and, and they, you know, they, they get better, they improve. But then they keep coming to see me right. and I don't know right. what to do. And during one role play, uh, one of the things that I learned from, from Jim is doing role plays of our, of our clients and then switching off and, and I would do a role play with him and cl cl client or whoever was role playing the client would have, have some emotions and just trying to teach him as a therapist to actually sit with those emotions and be with those emotions, not try to do something to the client. That was an entirely new concept for him, or so mm -hmm. it seemed. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. really struck me like that. Of course, it's great to learn from different teachers and different approaches and integrate them, but <laughs> the core skills of being able to actually sit with the client and sit with their emotion and be comfortable with them and help them explore mm. their emotions. I, I think some of these approaches uh, don't teach that. Well, yeah, this, this kind of opens a whole other continent of, of exploration uh, between us because I, 
I started reading based on watching that interview with Roldo May, I started reading his book, Existence. Um, and in that, he reflects on the existentialists. And, and it gets into the, the use of the self that you're describing. It's enlightened or it's informed by one's philosophical presuppositions, right? Including the ones that are technique-based. So I think a, a reflection of what one believes about what it means to be a person, what it means to be alive, what it means to be a human being, what a relationship is, um, serious reflection and an experience and work with these kinds of things. And it is important. And I think the point that Rollo May makes in, in that interview is that it's very easy to hide behind the technique to avoid looking into the darkness, the dark abyss of things related to the limitations of what it is to be human, that, that, that we all die and that we suffer and, and, and so forth. And, you know, these are things that I've learned about reading your father's books as well. You know, he, he confronts death anxiety. His most recent book is, is about this topic. Um, so, but this transition from, from doing, being done to, to being, uh, requires a, I think a recognition of the ways that we can objectify ourselves. We can objectify the client as like, there's a particular outcome that maybe I'm the therapist and trying to achieve or they, and so that would have implications or effects on the idea of experience and of relationship. Um, I wonder, I, I guess I'm curious about your own, where you're, you find yourself landing these days in terms of your approach or your, the balance between technique and, and of being and so forth. Like what um, is existential humanistic, a good way of describing the way that you think about or approach or experience therapy, or is there other ways that you could describe that? Yeah. Well, I, I just first I'd say I have a very, very small practice. I spend most of my time producing, you know, working with psychotherapy.net and producing new videos and kind of scouting out new talent. And I mean, there's an endless, uh, uh, and how can we produce videos, you know, the kind of psychotherapy videos 1.0, as I refer to it, the first videos were just showing sessions of therapy, which was remarkable in lieu of its, what was there before, which was nothing. I mean, when I went to grad school, I, I never, I saw one lousy video, I think it was, uh, you know, I, I didn't, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I think it's just astonishing that you can go, you could go through uh, grad school and never see anyone actually do therapy, you know, yeah. Yeah. and, and now, you know, um, but that's, that's another topic. Um, so I, I, uh, I produce, I, I see only a handful of clients now. Um, so just, the term existential humanistic, which one that Eugenthal coined, um, differentiating it from there's existential philosophers and people like Rollo May that called themselves existential, you know, psych psychotherapists. My my father always makes a point that he is never advocated for a school or a technique of existential psychotherapy. He just sees that there are some powerful ideas in literature and philosophy that. Are important for therapists to keep in mind. They're, it's a lens to see the client right. and the therapy, and I, I, I agree with that. Personally, I've just never been drawn to philosophy. It just doesn't work for me. Uh, so, what really was powerful from Bugenthal's work is more his 
his overall approach, which included techniques and of my father's work, which uh, this idea of using, working in the here and now of the re therapeutic relationship, therapist and client, paying attention to what happens between the two of you, uh, like he did in group therapy, to inform and explore the patient's interpersonal world. It's not just for the fun of it or because you're humanistic and you like to sit there with a client and beat your feelings. It's because A, you think it can help them get a deeper uh, exploration and understanding of themselves and B, so you can apply that to helping them think and put into practice different ways that they can be and relate to other people since so much of our, our world is about relationships or right. social beings. So those are ideas that are important to me. And as, uh, as I move from just being a student of therapy in life to at the age of 62, realizing I'm not the youngest kid in the room anymore, even though <laughs> kind of on a, on a, you look, you look great, Victor. You on an archetype, <laughs> on a, on a, you know, uh, if you go back to, I don't know, um, I'm okay, you're okay, transactional analysis, the tapes we have in my mind, I still think of myself as a kid, and every time I meet someone on, on Zoom, I'm always a little surprised, oh, they're younger, <laughs> they're younger than me, uh, so uh, all of that to say, I've got a stepping into, you know, being more of a teaching role, and mentoring to some, and, and, teaching through the videos I produce um, to um, where was I going with that? I'm drawn to uh, this idea with myself and with, you know, people I, I teach through directly or indirectly. Uh, this idea of, of gaining greater knowledge and ease with who we are as a person, as a therapist, and becoming freer to step outside the box we kind of get in when we're professionalized. I think often the professionalization mm -hmm. process of going through school, which is important, but it restricts us. Uh, it, it restricts us. It often limits us from being spontaneous, from, from being warm, from being loving, from revealing things uh, yeah. to our clients yeah. that are human and make them feel good and give them hope and, and give them support to, to go take risks with their life. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but those are some well, yeah, that come yeah. to mind. For sure. For sure. I think maybe one of the one of the last things that I'd like to discuss with you is just this phrase self-connection, which to me is like the center point of my study of Virginia's work. It's really kind of propelled me to focus on this, of trying to understand what it means. Um, I wonder if you could just free associate a little bit for yourself when you hear the phrase self-connection, what comes up for you? And the thing, some of the things you were saying re really resonated with me, but yeah, I wonder if you could indulge me a bit. Yeah, well, this does resonate for me. It's, I think, uh, brings up things that have been on my mind a lot, probably for the last several years. But this idea uh, that, you know, we're, we're this being, we're this entity. And when we look back upon our lives, even though, you know, most 
most of us have been through times of very difficult struggle. Other, some have gone through life with less, less bumps and mm-hmm. abysses than others, uh, but I've certainly had my share of difficult times. And, you know, very, we're in a very different state of, state of mind, and yet, and yet, I'm exactly the same person I was that when I was nine years old, I mean, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think we all have that. It's, it's kind of uh, a dil- not a dilemma. It's, it's, it's kind of paradoxical in some way. Like, how can we be the same person and have the same essence? Mm. And yet we discover new things. I mean, I discovered maybe 20 years ago that I had, you know, artistic interests and leanings and started drawing started with actually drawing stick figure cartoons for psychotherapy.net that I hired artists to draw because I, I quote, didn't know how to draw and then started, you know, improving very basic, still don't know how to draw very well, but then I started painting and then I started getting into doing some wood carving and then I started getting into uh, what I'm doing right now mostly is metal, metal sculptures and it's fantastic and I love it. And then I can look back on my life and think, oh, I had these little creative leanings that maybe I expressed a little bit of, or maybe I didn't express at all. And how would my life have been different if I had, you know, somehow been able to run with those things earlier in life? Um, How does this tie together? so it seems it seems like you're if I could just reflect a little bit, you're there's this paradox of like I'm changing, but I'm the same. There's something essential about me. And I think in your in your experiences with art, it's like you were paring down to something. It's funny because I think about the wood sculpture. You're 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 cutting away something so that the thing that's there could be there. And and I think that's a beautiful image for self-connection. It's like a lot of what that means to me, it's not essential to define what self-connection means, but I think it's important to be able to let go of the things that are, you know, maybe diff- patterns or identities that no longer fit. And I think that ability to let go, there's something about that letting go process of, of carving away that, I, that it's alive for me. And I think that's the process which is a way of pointing at what I think about when I think about self-connection. So I wonder, wonder what you think of that. Um, well, what comes t- to mind to me is our work with clients and that, you know, Jim, Jim's idea of supporting clients, like you're trying to find what their essence is and support that mm. and nurture that. I mean, I have not, you know, I've had fortune or misfortune, whatever it is, to generally work with what we call high-functioning clients. I've certainly had some clients who are deeply, deeply traumatized, but, um, you know, I haven't worked with sociopaths or, uh, you know, so generally people, they have some integrated identity and how precious it is to co-discover with your client what what is their essence what is precious about them yeah and Mm -hmm. how to support and nurture that so that that they can be more of that person in the relationships they're 
in or it's getting into a new relationship that's going to fit better or and you know express more of themselves in their work or find some new work that allows them um, you know, that uh, as I say it now this is kind of a I don't know something I've thought about but really you're kind of cleaning away you know like yeah I don't know now I have that image of a surgeon they talk about getting into some wound or cleaning up some you know fibers or you know, mm -hmm. I don't know you know uh, tendons that are frayed you know I kind of feel like we're we're trying to clean up get rid of the noise get you know and help support their essence to grow mm -hmm. more in, in terms of the person that they can be it sounds kind of uh Pollyannish in a way or you know yeah uh, but, I, 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 but, I want, but I believe it I want to share a Pollyannish story with you um <laughs> I was in a eight-day training a few years ago before the pandemic and as it was coming towards an end I kept having this thought of like I would like to feel special I would like to feel special and I just when I when I hear thoughts like that I just oh that's kind of like my ego and what, whatever does that mean and then I was talking to a friend and we were sitting, we were on this university campus and we were looking out at everyone. And I had this idea that I was looking at the students and the various people passing by. And I had this association. It's like, all these people are passing by. They're like constellations. They're like stars. And did we all have a star quality in a way? And, and I think that that's that yearning, that voice that was quietly kind of bothering me that I wanted to be special. It's like, we all yearn towards that essence that I think you're describing. And so instead of thinking of a, a client list or a caseload, I thought about, you know, th these are, these are people I'm working with that are stars that have forgotten their stars. And, and my job is to try to help remind them. So I think of it as like a star list. So. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that sounds like a, it's a beautiful image to end on. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering uh, if there's any final thoughts that you want to share, what this was like for you. Um, I, I could say that <sighs> I, I don't feel nervous anymore. I feel really, I feel really connected with you somehow, uh, Victor. I really enjoyed the, the journey. It's got, this would have been nice, like going for a nice nature walk with you and having this conversation. I could imagine us doing something like that. Um, so I'm, I'm very appreciative of you and, um, thank you for, for sharing I've got, I've learned a lot from our conversation today and I have experienced a lot too. Yeah. Uh, I, I too, this was a new or experience for me as I, as I said, I kind of was set kind of an informal goal for myself just to, uh, try to be open to this conversation and see where would go rather than, uh, you know, trying to make certain teaching points. Um, and uh, I feel I've succeeded in that. Uh, yeah. uh, so I've, it's been, it's been good. I've enjoyed and I've, you know, uh, didn't know you at all from this conversation. I feel like I, I, I now know who you are and have some connection and it would, hope that we'll have a chance to talk in the future. Yeah, yeah. There's many things that I wanted to to ask you and explore with you. And, uh, and that's it. Thank you so much for taking the time. So